Please be seated. <clears throat> Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're visiting, we'd like to welcome you. We're glad that you're here with us. We're nearing the end in a series on the book of James. So if you'd like to turn to James chapter 5, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1013. While you're turning there, I'll tell you something that has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. I got here this morning early for our first service, and so Elizabeth came with the kids during Sunday school, and she tells me the story about how she's get, trying to get the kids ready for uh, to go to church. Our youngest son, John Mack, disappears into the craft room for a while, and she time comes to go to church. She hustles everybody in the car, and as she's getting them out of the car in the parking lot here, she realizes John Mack's taken the glue stick and rubbed it over his face and then put glitter on his face. <laughs> Whole new standard for dressing up for church. And like I said, that has nothing to do with the sermon, but I wanted to share that with you. Uh, this does have something to do with the sermon. Let me ask you this question. Are you a patient person? Are you a patient You know, laughter as everybody thinks about their spouse or whoever's sitting next to them. Some of you are. Some of you are certainly much more patient than I am. But that, that question is going to be front and center for us as we look at James this morning. That's the topic that James brings up here in James chapter 5. So let me pray for it and then uh, pray for us and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Please, please pray with me. Father, we uh, come to you this morning and we come to look into your word because we are people who need to hear from you. And we confess that when we open scripture, um, you, you speak to us. You tell us that this is your voice talking into our lives, that you, the God of the universe, bends down close to speak into our ears that we might know who you are. We might know about the life to which you call us, that we might know what it means to live and to be fully human and be in relationship with our Creator. So would you show us that even this morning as we uh, look at what you have for us here in the book of James. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord... See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed... Who remains steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And so to it we turn. James's point, and it's right on the surface here, is that we are called to be a people who are to be patient. We're to be a patient people. And he calls us to be patient in the midst of our our real lives, the real stuff going on, the midst of the uncertainties and the struggles of our life. He says to us, be patient. So he's going to talk to us about the call to patience and the power for patience and some examples of what it means to live patiently. Okay, so first, the, the call to patience. Now, we all know that we're supposed to be patient people. Wherever you're coming from, even if it's the first time you walk in the door today, we all, we all know that. I mean, we, 
You know, we're supposed to be patient. If you've grown up in the church, been around church stuff, maybe you've heard sort of the church joke about you should never pray for patience, right? You know, the joke is, you know, if you pray for patience, God's going to bring all kinds of things into your life to help you develop that, right? Patience doesn't just sort of descend on our shoulders magically. It's born out of the struggles of our life as we actually become patient, patient people. Some of you may well have had your parents speak to you about patience. Mine certainly did. Elizabeth uh, brought it to a whole new level. They, they had a, and some of you know this song. There's the patience song that her family used to sing. I didn't learn this till we got married. I, I will not sing it for you. I'll try to recite it. You know, have patience, have patience. Don't be in such a hurry. When you get, how's it go? When you get impatient, you only start to worry. Remember, remember that God is patient too. And think of all the other times that others had to wait on you. I've had this sung to me in my adult years. I can only imagine growing up with a parent singing this to me. Because you know that in the, when you need that song, when you're in the grips of impatience, the very last thing you want is a little cheery song being sung to you about being patient. I was spared that growing up, my children are not. But whether... Whether you had that or not, you know that, that it is foundational for us in this life to be patient. And that, you know, that is not, we don't have to be patient just because the world has gone wrong, which it has. We have to be patient because we're people, because we're human, because we're finite. And we live in a world where things progress in time. We've always got our eyes on things down the road and we just have to be patient for it. We just have to wait. I mean, even God. As he speaks to us in scripture, he is described as being patient because God is someone who is telling a story that is unfolding. It's a story that opens up at the beginning of the Bible with the creation and then the fall of humanity, the estrangement of men and women and all their descendants from God. And thus begins the story of God putting things back together again, of restoring us, of saving us. And think about if you... I think about the long stretch of the Bible written over the course of thousands of years by multiple authors. And think about the way God chose to, to unveil his salvation slowly over time, culminating in the coming and the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. I mean, here's the way Galatians chapter 4 speaks of this story that God so patiently tells. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What does he say? In this great story God's telling, in the fullness of time, when the time was just right, our patient God sent us his son, Jesus. We look around and we think about our own impatience and we wonder, what is God doing? First Peter chapter 3 says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What's he saying? God is patient. We have a patient God and he calls us, therefore, and it's no surprise that we're called to be patient people too. And that's what James says. I mean, twice in those first couple of verses, he commands us to be patient. Verse five, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Verse eight, you also be patient. And sandwiched in there a story about farmers who are, who are patient. You go on and the passage talks about another angle on patience, steadfastness, that we need to be steadfast, that we need to stand strong in this life in which we're called to be patient. You know, he gives us these three examples. of you, you want to know what patience looks like? Here's what it looks like. It looks like a farmer 
goes and sows his crop and he waits for this for the early and the late rains because he he knows the rains are coming and he knows that there's nothing he can do now that he has done his work but to wait and be patient he goes on speaks makes reference to the prophets the old testament prophets and talks about how they were patient and suffering that these prophets given the word of god by god himself to bring to god's people who were rejected by god's own people who were in many cases killed, who were, uh, who were shunned for speaking the very words of God. He says, be patient like them. And then he goes on and mentions, and we'll come back to this uh, in a little bit here, he mentions Job and the incredible patience of Job, the steadfastness of Job. He said, here are three pictures of the farmer, the prophets, Job, what it looks like to be patient people. Now we all talk about patience. Patience, patience is a virtue, right? It's a virtue. And it's one without which we will never be able to navigate the difficulties of our life if we don't have it. And, and honestly, even as I speak of this and we talk about it, in some ways to talk about patience feels at some level just sort of trite, right? Oh, be patient. Yet it's only trite because we have to focus our eyes on it so often because it is so foundational for us that we would be patient people. And he exhorts us to it. You know, maybe you've been on a long car ride with small children and you've heard this refrain, you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And how often the answer is no. But it's our question too. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And James reminds us, for much and even most of our experience, the answer is no. And we have to be patient. Okay, so James calls us to what we know we're called to, to be patient people. But where, where is the power going to come from to be patient? Like, how, how are we going to become patient people? What's going to be the fuel for that? Because, I mean, let's face it, you can only be patient if you know that there is an end to your longing. You can only be patient if you know that there is, that, that things are going to, that there is a good end for what you're hoping for. You can only be patient as a kid eventually if you realize we will eventually get to grandma's house. Right? We're going to get there. You can only be patient if you're a farmer if you know the rains are coming. God is good. He sends them every year. You can only be patient in the middle of the realities of your own life if you have your eyes on something, a sure thing yet to come. Because if you don't believe there is an end to your longings, you will not be patient. You will take things into your own hands, wrench the control of your life, or you'll become uh, dejected and cynical disillusion if we don't have a picture of the, f- the fulfillment of our longings. And that is what James points us to. He says that we can be patient people because Jesus is coming back. That, that's, his, that's the crux for James. He says that is the secret of being patient people, the re- coming return of Jesus. And James tells us two things about this. He says this coming return of Jesus is assured and it's close. First, it's assured. I mean, look, again, the start of the passage. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. The coming there in Greek, the words parousia, a word you, you, you might have heard before. Uh, and it, it becomes almost a technical term in the New Testament for the return of Jesus at the end of time. And this would have been a very uh, common word for people in the Greco-Roman world as they read this. Because there was another parousia, another coming, another appearing to which they were always being pointed. This was a word that was used in reference to the coming or the appearing or the arrival of a king or a dignitary. Okay, so if a city was going to receive a visit from the Roman emperor, they would speak about the parousia of the emperor. 
And yet here James, as with so many other New Testament authors, says there is a great parousia, there is a great coming, there is a great visitation, and it is not the emperor of Rome. It is our God and King Jesus himself. He says he is coming. James tells us it is assured, it is going to happen. Again, the farmer, why can he rest? Because he knows the rains will come. He says for us, we can rest as well because Jesus is returning. As we've said often around here, this is a central part of Christian belief that we in fact live in the middle of the story. That Jesus has come once and won salvation for his people through his death and resurrection. And he is coming again at the end of time. And right now in between, we live in this in-between time waiting for the coming of the Lord. We live at the hinge point in, in light of the hinge of history. The reality of Jesus is coming and return again. He says we live in what ought to be for us very expectant times. The king is coming. Some of you will be familiar with the movie The Princess Bride. Princess Bride, Princess Buttercup falls in love with Wesley, this incredible undying love. And Wesley goes to win his fortune and he's gone for years. And Buttercup gets news where she assumes he must have died. And she becomes, through some twist of fate, engaged to the evil Prince Humperdinck. Wesley comes to save her. Here's their first conversation. Wesley says, I told you I would always come for you. Why didn't you wait for me? Buttercup Well, you were dead. Wesley, death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. Buttercup says, I will never doubt again. And he says, there will never be a need. Cheesy as it is. (laughs) There it is. Right? Death cannot stop true love. And we have one that we are waiting for. We're going to keep our eyes on him. That's what James holds for us, our coming and returning king. Not only is it assured, he says it is going to happen. He says it, in fact, is close. Verse 8, he says, you know, the coming of the Lord, it's at hand. Verse 9, he talks about the judge who's standing at the door. He wants his people to live in this expectation of we really do live on the verge of the return of Jesus. Have your eyes open. Now, we maybe read this with some cynicism uh, at first because, I mean, here we are 2,000 years later saying the judge is standing at the door. He's coming. He's coming soon. You know, was James wrong? I I think the expectation he's trying to hold them to is that something is now drastically different in history. We are in what the scripture calls the last days. Again, after the return, after the coming and before the return of Christ. And he says, literally, this could happen any day. Now, for most of us, most of us are not the ones who uh, are at home reading the newspapers trying to figure out what's happening uh, across the world so we can pinpoint the day when Jesus comes back. Jesus made it very clear that no one will know the day or hour when he is going to return. I mean, instead, most of us, if you're like me, we have to remind ourselves that he is coming back. That we're not just lost here wandering around forever in the middle of the story, but to have this edge of expectation of he is returning. There's a day the king is going to step through the sky, put his foot on the ground, and it will be the time. And it could happen tomorrow. And it could happen in a thousand years. But James says to us, brothers and sisters, our king is coming back. And if you're going to be a patient people, you have to have your eyes on that. It is sure. And it is even on its way. Would we be a people who could think the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now you might be here thinking, 
and I feel this way sometimes. You know, it just sort of feels sometimes, especially if you're in the middle of a, of a struggle, where it's making a, it a struggle for you to listen to a sermon on patience right now. When you're in those moments and you think, you know, pie in the sky by and by. Right? This is what they go to all the time. You know, it's going to turn out okay in the end, but what about now? Well, let me just ask, where are you putting your hope right now? What is the good end of the story that you are waiting for? Because you are waiting for some good end. Is it this one? And the truth of the Bible is not pie in the sky by and by. It's heaven coming to earth in real time, in real space. A king who really is coming back. And we're not there yet. We're not at grandma's. It's not the end of the trip. And the rains haven't yet come. But they are coming. Okay, the reality of our, our call to patience this power for patience that comes from having our eyes fixed on something that is sure, the hope that is to come. But how do we do it? You know, how, how do you then live patiently, keeping this in mind? James talks about three different areas of life where we have to live patiently, and he says a little bit about each of these. He talks to us first about being patient as we wrestle with our circumstances, and he goes on and talks about being patient as we uh, wrestle with others around us. And being patient as we wrestle with God himself. Okay, so first, patience as we wrestle with our circumstances. If, you've, if you're familiar with James, if you've been here for the, for the series, in the very first chapter, he spends a lot of time talking about the very real suffering and trials that we go through in life. I mean, that is the foundational reality of the book of James, from which everything else springs as he talks to us. I mean, here, here are just a couple quotes from chapter 1. He says this, "...count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds." For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness. Verse 12 in chapter 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The whole context of James is that we are in a life where we are struggling and we are impatient because we want the end to come. We want relief from our trial. We want final and full restoration. So how do we live patiently as we wrestle with our circumstances? I, th I think James points us to it here in verse 8. Look with me. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. Another way to translate that would be strengthen your heart. He says to us, as he says, you know, you're in the middle of all the very real circumstances of your life. Take heart. Take strength. Strengthen yourself. How would we do that? Well, of course, it's tied to what we've been saying, the return, the coming return of our Lord. But just practically, maybe here's one way where we can strengthen our hearts. Pray. Pray. Okay, now, we, that's not the answer you want. That's not the answer I want. Tell, let me do something, okay? You don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know where, how this is breaking down. You don't know how this relationship's falling apart. You don't know about my health. You don't know... We all have our trials and our struggles. And what we so desperately grasp for is, give me the thing to do to solve my problem. And James says, pray. And we, we hear that badly because we think prayer is the thing that you do when there's nothing practical or really helpful you really can do. Right? We even say things like, well, at least we can pray. As if, you know, there's, you know, door prize number three instead of the grand prize. He says that we can pray. And it is to be not our last resort, but our first reflex. And let me just give you a couple thoughts on pray. How do we pray? 
We pray out, we pray in, and we pray up. Okay, I'll go on. Uh, okay, we, no, we pray out, we pray in, and we pray up. We pray out. In the middle of our impatience, in the middle of our struggle, we pray out. We pray about the thing out there. We pray about the circumstance. For instance, when somebody comes in and asks the elders of our church to pray for them because they are sick, and next week's passage in James is all about that, when that happens, what do we do? We pray that that person would be healed. We pray that disease would be taken away. We pray that that person would live. And that is entirely appropriate for you as well. When you pray, when you pray about the, the lost job, when you pray about the difficult struggle with someone in your family, when you pray about the thing going on at work, you pray about the thing out there, and rightly so. Lord, make this right. Take these jagged, broken edges and do something with it. Put them back together. Weave it together. Make something beautiful out of this mess. We pray out. And we should. But for many of us, maybe that's the only prayer that we make. And I think the Bible points us in at least two other directions. Not only we pray out, we pray in. Let me take you back to that moment when, with the elders, we were praying for someone who is sick. We don't only pray that that person would be, would be made well, which we certainly do. We pray, Lord, in the middle of this struggle, in the middle of this sickness, would you use it for good in this person's life, in their spouse's life, in their family's life? Would you give this person great patience and endurance? Would you enable them to see your goodness and your sweetness in the midst of their struggle? Would you hold on to him? Would you work good things? Because as James has reminded us, that there are, some, there are some things, some qualities of character, some good things in this broken life that can only come through suffering and trial. And James reminds us that God uses those broken edges for exactly that purpose in our lives. That he would do good things in us. And so when we pray, we don't only pray out, we pray in. Lord, would you use this to change me? Would you use this to make me more like you? Would you use this to work joy in my life that is rooted in you and not my circumstance? Would you do it in me? So we pray out and we pray in. And then we also pray up. That in the midst of our struggles and our trials over which we are impatient, we learn to pray, God, I bring praise to you. That's not the same thing as praying and thanking God for the substance of the struggle itself. But thanking God that He is at work, that He does not allow anything in the lives of His children that He is not going to use for good for them. He promises us that in Scripture. And He wants us, in the middle of our very real struggles, to learn to give thanks and to praise and to look to Him. Let me give you an example of this. This comes from Psalm 46, this kind of praise that comes in the midst of struggle. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. What does he say? Something is going on in the life of this psalmist, the life of the nation. And he says, it feels like the mountains are getting thrown down and the ocean is coming in in flood. But he says, yet we will give praise because our God is the one who holds all things in his hands. And even in the midst of this, he says, we will give praise to him. We will not only pray out and pray in, but we will pray up. 
Okay, so he says, work this out in our wrestling with our circumstances of life. He says, not only that, he says, we have to work it out as we wrestle uh, to be patient with others. And I mean, it's interesting the way, the, the, the thing he points to. I mean, he, he's speaking again to this community of people following Jesus. And he says, he says, be patient. And he says, what? Do not grumble. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another's brothers so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You know what it's like in the midst of a particular struggle of your own life, whether that's at home or at work. Let's keep, let's keep it out of the home. At, at, at work, with a friend, with something going on in life. And you can be one of the most patient and admirable people in certain spheres of your life. Let's say it's work. All your coworkers are amazed at your cool-headedness and your ability to navigate through trouble. But then you come home and your spouse says, look, you can't take it out on us. You know, you come home here and you're irritable and you're impatient. You know, you know what it's like when we tend to take out our impatience or grumble or struggle with sometimes with those who are very closest to us. Sometimes it's the spouse we love, the children we love, the friends we love that sometimes get the raw edge. And that's what James says. He says, don't grumble against one another in the midst of the struggles of your life because he knows it's a real temptation for us. Now, you might look at that and just say, well, you know, grumbling, why didn't he pick something serious, right? You know, don't, you know... Fill in the blank. You know, don't murder each other. He's said stuff like that before. Don't defraud each other. Don't slander each other. He said that before. Here he just says, don't grumble. And it feels like grumbling. I mean, come on, we all grumble. It's a little nitpicky. Uh, let, me, let me read you a, a section, a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Uh, I was preparing this week, listening to a sermon on this passage, and the pastor went, went to this. So I'm going to bring us to it. The Great Divorce is a story of C.S. Lewis is about uh, it's it's about heaven and hell and about how those who live in hell who are utterly estranged from God and from each other who live this sort of vaporous wispy existence can sign up and take uh, bus tours of heaven. They come up to heaven and take a tour, and most of them never want to stay. Interestingly enough. And so our, the narrator here, he's walking around heaven and he's got a guide who's explaining everything to him. And it kind of breaks into this moment. I better take a sip of water because this takes some work here. At this moment, we're suddenly interrupted by the thin voice of a ghost walking at an enormous speed. Looking behind us, we saw the creature. It was addressing one of the solid people, those who live in heaven, and was doing so too busily to notice us. Every now and then the solid spirit tried to get in a word without success. The ghost talk was like this. Oh, my dear, I've had such a dreadful time. I don't know how I ever got here at all. I was coming here with Eleanor Stone and we'd arranged the whole thing and we were to meet at the corner of Sink Street. I made it perfectly plain because I knew what she was like. And if I told her once, I told her a hundred times, I would not meet her outside that dreadful Maribank woman's house, not after the way she treated me. That was one of the most dreadful things that ever happened to me. I'm dying to tell you because I'm sure you feel that I exact acted just rightly. No, wait a moment, dear. Wait till I've told you. I tried living with her when I first came, and it was all fixed up. She was to do the cooking, and I was to look after the house, and I did think I was going to be comfortable after all I'd been through. But she turned out to be so changed, absolutely selfish, and not a particle of sympathy for anyone but herself. And as I once said to her, I do think I'm entitled to a little consideration, because you at least lived out your time, but I oughtn't to have been here for years and years. Yet, oh, but of course I'm forgetting you don't know, I was murdered, simply murdered. Dear, that man should never have operated. I ought to be alive today, and they simply starved me in that dreadful nursing home, and no one ever came near me, and... 
The shrill, monotonous whine died away as the speaker, still accompanied by the bright patience at her side, moved out of hearing. What troubles you, son? asked my teacher. I'm troubled, sir, because that unhappy creature doesn't seem to me to be the sort of soul who ought to even be in danger of damnation. She isn't wicked. She's only a silly, garrulous old woman who got into a habit of grumbling and feels that a little kindness and rest and change would do her all right. That is what she once was. That is maybe what she still is. If so, certainly she'll be cured. But the whole question is whether she is now a grumbler. Well, I thought that, that there was no doubt about that. Ah, but you misunderstand me. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. If there is a real woman, even the least trace of one, still there inside the grumbling, it can be brought to life again. If there's one wee spark under all those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. They must be swept up. But how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? The whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood is so nearly nothing, but you'll have had the experience. It begins with a grumbling mood, and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it. And yourself, in a dark hour, may will that mood and embrace it. Now, you can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. There will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. Lewis reminds us that grumbling, too, can kill us. And James speaks to us and he says that we must, as we wrestle with others, we must not grumble. We must watch our tongues, as he's told us so many times. And then thirdly, not only wrestling with our circumstances and patience as we wrestle with others, but patience as we wrestle with God. And he brings that into view in, in one of the examples that he, uh, that he puts here for us in verse 11. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He says, You know about the steadfastness of Job. But here's the thing, if you've ever read the book of Job, you know it's a a little more complicated than just that. James has his finger on what's happening at the heart of Job. But if you read Job, you see here's a man who struggles unbelievably. His family is stripped away from him. His health is stripped away from him. So much so that by the second chapter, after 30-something, you know, before, you know, there are 30-something chapters, I think, in Job. In the second chapter, already his wife is saying to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Your life has become so miserable. But Job won't. He doesn't speak a word against God. But he spends the entire book asking these questions of God. Where are you? Why are you doing this? How could you ha- this happen to me? And it's this dialogue back and forth with him and these supposed friends of his that are always trying to blame Job. And it's a story of a man wrestling with the very real circumstances of his life, not turning his back on God, but turning his face towards God. Where are you? James comes, or excuse me, Job comes and asks his questions. And and James reminds us here that Job, we remember him for his steadfastness. He did not turn away, but he turned towards God in his impatience, in his struggle, in his trial. He turned to God and asked him the questions. Now, if you know the book of Job, it comes to the end. There's this dramatic, climactic scene where the thing Job has been asking for the whole book, just give me an audience with God, is granted to him. 
As he comes into the presence of God, all his questions dry up like dust on his tongue and fall away. And he is left with an awe of being in the presence of God. And the paradox of the story is Job's questions in one sense are not answered. God doesn't explain himself to him. But on the other hand, in another very real sense, they are utterly answered. He says, my questions are done because I have seen God. James tells us we're going to be patient people as we wrestle ourselves with God. That we can come and ask our questions. That patience does not mean turning our brain off, turning our struggle off, turning our questions off. But it is a matter of bringing them to the right place. And again, as we said before, one of the avenues by which we do that is prayer. Maybe you felt like prayer has just been shut down in your life. I mean, most people, if you were to ask them, you know, tell me about your, your prayer life. If they had an answer... It tends to be something like this. Well, it's just I just don't pray as much as I should, or I know I don't, or it's just not. I don't feel like I connect like I should. And, you know, there are many enemies to our prayer. But maybe you've gotten to the place where you don't want to pray because you don't want to feel that sense of disappointment maybe you've felt in the past. Maybe you've felt you've asked your questions that haven't been answered, and your patience gave out and you stopped asking. Maybe you've become cynical. God's not going to answer my prayers. He doesn't care. He's not listening. Paul Miller uh, wrote a book recently called A Praying Life that several of us on staff are reading right now. And and here's what he says about that dynamic, that struggle of prayer when we go from maybe at one point what was a a naive optimism in our life to we swing to the other end of the spectrum to a, a cynicism that shuts us down. He says this, Shattered optimism sets us up for the fall into defeated weariness and eventually cynicism. You think it would just it would just leave us less optimistic, but we humans don't do neutral well. We go from seeing the bright side of everything to seeing the dark side of everything. We feel betrayed by life. The movement from naive optimism to cynicism is the new American journey. In naive optimism, we don't need to pray because everything's under control. Everything is possible. In cynicism, we can't pray because everything is out of control and little is possible. Has your prayer been shut down? As you wrestle with your circumstances, as you wrestle to be patient with others, as you wrestle with your God, our God is listening. He is coming back. And he attends to us even now. And so he says, you, my sons and daughters, he says, you can be patient because your life rests in the hands of God. And so James tells us, be patient. May we help each other to be patient. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as impatient people seeing what is ahead of us, knowing our call to be patient. We know in the fiber of our being that we are going to perish without patience, but it must come from you. Father, would you fix our eyes on Jesus, his rescue of us, his coming return, that we might, in the middle of our very real struggles and very real trials, be patient. Be patient in our circumstances. Be patient with those around us. Be patient as we bring our struggles to you because you are listening, you are good, and you hold us in your hands. We ask this in the name of Jesus.